On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Henrietta, and Henrietta was raised by a manipulative narcissistic mother. It's a story of generational trauma, scapegoats, parental alienation, and the cult of family. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Henrietta. How are you? Alive, which is great. (laughs) The absolute minimum, which is perfect for me. I'm still alive today. I think think that's the first time we've had that answer. (laughs) I'm, I'm happy you're here. We we chit chatted a little uh, before I turned on the recorder, loosened loosened up a little. Both of us did. I spoke to you a while ago, and I was sitting in a coffee shop during that conversation, and there was a lot of background noise while I was kind of getting the ins and outs of your story. And I don't know if you remember that at a certain point someone started talking to me. I forget what completely happened, but. I think they were saying that, like, um, you shouldn't webcam because the ghost on yeah, the other something side about of the spirits. screen Something through. was about spirits. <laughs> it was a really completely. odd interaction. I'm talking to you about really serious things, and then someone starts talking to me about the spirits that might be coming through the computer. Right. That's the wrong podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So I really want to thank you for being here. Today we're going to hear your story. It's a family story. It's a complicated story. And there are a lot of different things going on. So uh, I know you're going to do a great job uh, you know, communicating everything that you want to communicate. And you're going to help a lot of people uh, just by being here and just by being you. Because you're, you're a really good person. Everyone's going to find that out today. Also, everyone, a trigger warning. We do discuss child uh, sexual abuse in Henrietta's story. And now, without further ado, Henrietta, the floor is now yours. Thank you so, so much. Um, So my family are Vietnamese immigrants from post-war. Um, and they came to the States, I think in the late eighties and they were teenagers at the time and they weren't married yet. Um, but it's so bananas. My entire like family line is just full of narcissists. It's, um, so my mom is one, but she married my dad to get away from her narcissist, narcissistic mother. Um, so, uh, it, it was definitely one of those weddings where it was like I need to get away from my mom so she she married my dad they um moved um into the northern states of the U.S. where my mom's family lived in the southern states of the U.S. um and so my mom was you know up north she didn't have her family around she didn't have any friends because um they're pretty 
um, new to America. So uh, they didn't have a lot of friends or anything. And um, at the time that they got married, my dad was like, you don't have to work. I'll take care of you. You don't need a license. I'll drive you around. You know, like basically um, his way of being her knight in shining armor. But um, (laughs) the ulterior motive was that, like, she can't go anywhere without him. She can't do anything without him. And because of that, my mom was very isolated, very trapped. And my dad's family already hated her from the beginning. Um, uh, So when they had the three daughters, us three, um, we ended up being like byproducts of that hate as well. Um, And um, so there are so many siblings. I'm just going to name us by um, numbers. My older sister is number one. Um, I'm number two. And at the time, it was just uh, my younger sister as well, number three. So it was the three of us for about 13-ish years. Um, And so I was not only the middle child, which, like, if anyone's into, like, the whole psychology thing, like, the middle child tends to get the shittiest end of the stick. (laughs) Um. And not only was I the middle child, I was also the scapegoat of the family. And I also um, was bullied a lot, not just in school, but also, you know, by my dad's family and all that stuff, too. So I didn't have friends and I barely had, like, family other than my mom and my sisters. And my dad, he was around, but he was very um, emotionally unavailable. Um, like, I don't know if it's an Asian thing or if it's just how my dad is, but like, he was just like, I put food on the table, I pay the bills, you know, like, and, and so my mom was like our primary caregiver and because she didn't have a job or anything else, you know, like she dedicated all of her time to us. And so like, my mom was like our safe haven and, um, my sisters were like my only comrades and the people I trust and um like it's I can't say that I hate my mom uh I don't think to this day I I can say that I hate my mom um because I do think that at least in the beginning she had very genuine um intentions of trying to be a mom and and care for us and love us and then it just turned into something um I guess more <laughs> manipulative down the line, but so when we talk about your family, your family story, your parents, your parents' parents, their parents, mm-hmm. this is a story of generational trauma. Yeah, and in many ways, sometimes you think that the person that you are trusting is the person being abused, which they can be abused, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily see the whole them. And a lot of times in generational trauma, you have the people that are just passing it along from generation to generation. And then there are people like you who are saying it's stopping here with me. And your mom might be in one aspect, one thing, and then in which is a victim. And then in another aspect, they can be the abuser. 
and you might see your dad in one way in one instance and see him in a bad light maybe originally and then that might change depending on certain things and these are the confusing things because if you've listened to some older episodes and maybe i'm saying older episodes maybe i'm not sure because things everyone meld and into stories sometimes stories meld together and I forget who who is who and what is what, and maybe if I even put these episodes out there. But there have been many instances and stories that I've heard where the parent that they thought was the safe parent after a a divorce happens, Mm -hmm. uh, they thought this one parent was the abused parent, and they were. But when the divorce happened, after the fact, we find out that, okay— they are also an abuser. Look at how they're mm-hmm. acting now towards me before mm-hmm. it part kind of fit into their persona of being a victim. So actually being a victim of abuse sometimes for a specific type of person fits because they can play it and it's true and it's real and everyone can see it. But when you take that abuser out of the situation and there's no one doing that to them all of a sudden that person needs this specific drama or needs to be the victim of something and all of Mm -hmm. a sudden they're making an abuser or someone terrible uh, when they're not that person isn't terrible into someone terrible and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you realize hold on one second what's (laughs) going on here and so i've heard that story so many times Mm-hmm. And uh, not that I've jumped my the gun here. We still have to find out about all of the roles of every single family member <laughs> here. But it's a really interesting thing for people to it's – it's a world-shattering thing for a lot of people. Right. Because it, it, you lived in a world where this person is this thing, and then all of a sudden you're like, what? What? How? I don't, the, you, it's hard to compute. Mm-hmm. So I, sure. I, I went off on a tangent there. I apologize. No, it's okay. No, it makes sense. Yeah. The, the entire um, psychology of it all. Um, victims can also turn into abusers themselves. Um, and it's a toxic cycle and people either um, continue that cycle or they break it. And, and my mom, says that she is breaking it but um is continuing it and um and i guess like one when we're on the topic of the roles family roles my old number one was actually uh the golden child um your oldest sister the older sister yes yes um i'm number two and i was the scapegoat and my younger sister number three was actually the invisible child um of all of us and uh, number one and I were we're only like 13 months apart. So like we're very close in age and like immediately there's like competition with us academically because like we didn't have, you know, friends or really like family to um, um, play with or, or, you know, be involved with. Um, so we only had each other and pretty it's hard enough in an Asian family for you to like have that expectations of like making good grades. And then like you throw in the competition of a younger sibling, you know, and, and like, so my older sister would, um, uh, 
be in whatever grade in whatever class and she would make good grades and then when I came into that same class the year afterwards my mom would be like you have to do just as good if not better than your sister and for me just as good was not good enough so I had to be better um so I I uh studied hard and and my grades like um I don't I don't mean to brag uh, my grades were really good you know I didn't I didn't have my first B on my report card until I was like in ninth grade um so like I was top-notch geek <laughs> and nerd how did you feel about that B um it was in PE which <laughs> so that didn't count is, in your opinion in my opinion I I don't think it counted and and honestly if my first B is in PE I I think I'm okay with that it just kind of goes to show the type of person I was I was just not a physical person at all um but um yeah dude uh competitions with my older sister happen a lot you know with our grades and stuff and it um our personalities were very different too um number one also like she she very quickly picked up a domineering personality and it's because of her role as the oldest sister and also like with my dad's um absence in the family or whatever my mom like really like um like utilized us uh for emotional support and all that as well and um my older sister of course like you know she she bared the brunt of it because she was the oldest one um so um number one always like had this um air of dominance um in any situation we were in and then as we grew up you could see that even her dominance like overtook my mom's as well like they to this day both of them still kind of like fight for that like authority figure in the household and it's very very weird and very toxic and I was just like I can't do this <laughs> like <laughs> and and for me I'm very I was very shy not anymore I was very shy um very quiet um but I was also like quite the monkey like I would um I'm, I I would you know run around and and um I laugh loudly and I tried to make friends I was like more sociable than like anyone in my family and um my mom and sister didn't like that because <laughs> they said that like you know you need to be um a good like studious person you keep your head down you do your work you make the good grades you know and and um show yourself academically because whatever I did was a reflection on their uh their appearance you know and so at a very young age here you're trying to be yourself you're being told that being yourself is not good for the family yep you have to represent the family the way they want to be represented all of a sudden your voice has been taken away from you uh all these types of things uh, along those lines as far as autonomy has been taken away from you you're Mm -hmm. become an extension of your mother and you become this person in a competition with your sister about who can be the best at what they're doing. And yeah. perfectionism, I, I assume mm-hmm. here, has been, uh, you know, found its way into your bloodstream. Oh, yeah. And, and has now become 
a big part of who you are because this is how you have to play the game to be seen yeah. by your parents and to be appreciated and it's not being yourself. Not that being good at schoolwork is bad, but nah. for that to be your identity and for your way of being to be accepted right. is what's gone wrong here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, it, it gets worse. <laughs> this is, I'm going to say that a lot <laughs> in this episode, but it gets worse. Like I, when I was eight, I got diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, which is um, cancer. It's one of the two main uh, types of cancer that children get. The other one being leukemia, which luckily for me, I didn't have that one. Um, but I started like getting sick a lot and my mom, you know, eventually had to take me to the hospital and they diagnosed me. I was put on chemo uh, for several months. Um, I was hospitalized and then I, I went through radiation as well. And like at the time, it felt so good because my mom had to be by my side throughout all of it and I pretty much had her undivided attention and it just felt like oh this is what being loved by my mom is like and and then very soon and I didn't realize this until like way down the line but like pretty soon like it just seems like she enjoyed the sympathy she was getting from people and the attention that she was getting from people especially um you know strangers and and you know, people who um, would give us stuff or be kinder to us and, and, and all that. Like, it was so, it's so weird. She she put on this air of, like, woe is me. And, um, but I'm the one who's dying. <laughs> it was just, it was hard to comprehend at the time. But, like, at the time, I was just like, oh, my mom, you know, she, she left. My other two sisters at the house, she's with me all the time, you know, and, um, and it just felt good. It, it, I thought at the time it was genuine, but, you know, looking back now, there are a lot of moments where she used me for her own gain. And one of it being, um, um, I think I told you about this, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, where like they grant one dying wish to every cancer patient or whatever. And um, <laughs> 90s kids, me, wanted to go to the Backstreet Boys concert because that was the thing back in the day. <laughs> Who is your favorite Backstreet Boy? Oh, my God. Okay, it's controversial now, but Brian definitely was. Why was is that controversial guy. now? His political views are oh, I, I, I have no idea about the political yeah. views. I don't keep up on the Backstreet Boys politics. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I, I was very sad to find out uh, about that. But um, nevertheless, back in the day, my heart belonged to him and only him. Um, <laughs> don't tell my husband that. <laughs> don't worry. Your secret is safe with me and, you know, another... Ten to twenty thousand people. Oh, fun! <laughs> but yeah, so homegirl me wanted to go to a Backstreet Boys concert, and my mom said, "No, you want to go to Vietnam." And I was like, "Oh, she 
basically coerced me into using my dying wish <laughs> to go to Vietnam to see people I've never met before in my life to a country I've never been to or had no interest in going to. Um, and like, I always thought that was like one of the core memories that really fucked me up. Cause I was just like, like as an eight year old, you're just like, I just want to go see the Backstreet Boys. Why do I have to go to Vietnam? <laughs> like, but, um, but then like, as I got older, I just realized how messed up that was. You know, it's like, dude, your kid's dying. Like she might not make it to the next year. And like your biggest concern is when you get to see your family again in Vietnam and spend time with those people. So yeah, like they gave us tickets for me, um, my sisters and my mom to, to go back there. And um, that was my first trip to Vietnam. And can't say I enjoyed it that much. I'm going to be honest with you. The food was great. <laughs> yeah, it was just because it, it wasn't for me. You know, it was, I mean, it was about my mom. It was for my mom. I was just like her way of getting there. I want it my way. I do. I do. Tell me why. <laughs> Tell me why. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I get, dude, you you can't be throwing out like Backstreet Boy puns because I will, I will sing and your audience will turn off this podcast so fast, so fast. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I don't want to say I make light of the situation, but like one of my coping mechanisms is to make light of my own situation, or else I would just like, like cuddle up in a dark corner and cry my eyes out uh, until my hair goes gray. The timeline kind of bounces a little bit because when I was six, my uncle, my dad's youngest brother, started molesting me on a weekly basis. Um, and, and that would happen pretty much every time I went over to visit my dad's family. Um, and, you know, he, we were all left to our own devices. You know, my dad was drinking and gambling with his brothers and in-laws and all of the wives were uh, sitting around gossiping with each other and so all the kids were left to their own devices and although my uncle he was only two years older than me so he was I think he was eight when he started doing it and I was like six at the time and then it pretty much happened for six six years you know almost on a weekly basis um I think like the only gap was when I was in, I was hospitalized doing chemo. So uh, I was undergoing another traumatic life event, which is why, you know, the abuse paused for me. But um, so big pin in that cushion, because that, that's going to come back and uh, bite all of us in the ass. But um, yeah, my uncle would use like a lot of like manipulation and coercion to get, get me alone. And, um, you know, he, he pit my cousins and sisters against me and he, he would be like, if you don't let me do this, I, I'll tell them not to play with you anymore. And like, for me as a six-year-old, I already don't have friends. I'm already being bullied by my family and stuff like that. So like to say that, like he was going to ostracize me from my sisters and cousins, like I was like desperate, not 
not to lose that as well. So, And does anyone find out about what's going on? And if so, what happens? Uh, that happens when I was 16. Okay. Was so we'll, we'll get there. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was 11 or 12, my dad went to Vietnam and I think um, he met somebody there and there's a lot of back and forth where people are like, he actually had an affair with her. And then like him actually just being like, it was a misunderstanding. <laughs> so when he came back, you know, like my mom divorced him when she found out she, she was like, I stuck with you through all this other bullshit. I'm not sticking with you for cheating on me, you know? And so she basically took all three of us, move us down South where um, her family was, but like, even before the divorce was finalized, I realized that she was already talking to another man. And I found out a few years ago that, like, the man she was talking to and my stepdad was actually a friend of my dad's. So I was just like, oh, my gosh. But, like, I could tell very early on that, like, my mom didn't really have feelings uh, for my stepdad. I felt like it was more for financial security and um, and just like making sure we had a place to stay and and food and and all that stuff. So like he basically was just like my mom's bank, you know. <laughs> like, and I it's it sucks because you know my stepdad he's not my my dad and stepdad are not good husbands. Um, at least not to my mom, but that doesn't mean they were bad people. Um, and I feel like my mom and my sisters had a hard time, um, rationalizing that, um, at, because it was all like all good or all bad, all like good and evil. And, and it's like, if you wrong me, you're an evil person. And that's how, um, she, I mean, she manipulated my stepdad into that she would um hit us against my dad and my stepdad um saying that like your dad did this to hurt us he abandoned us he betrayed us so you need to like um utilize your position as his daughters to like get money from him or or um get him to basically do our bidding whenever we wanted you know and and so like we grew up hating our dad because it was like oh dad betrayed us you know not just mom he betrayed all of us and so like he she got us to hate our stepmom as well um and and all that stuff so it was it was really bad I didn't realize how how much of a web she was creating by doing that and you know so now she still doesn't have a job still doesn't have a car lives with my stepdad but she now has two sources of income from both my dad and my stepdad so before the divorce began, before the allegations of cheating, before mm -hmm. any of that, within the relationship of your mom and dad, what were you experiencing as an observer about the relationship in hindsight and then also at the time for you to come to conclusions about what's going on? Or uh, things that were being fed to you at that time to reinforce what was going on. Because during this time, you know, parental alienation of what occurs here 
um, is something everyone deals with. So as a child, how do you think you were influenced in this position even before the divorce happened? And for parents out there to learn from what you went through, what would you say to them about that? Um, it definitely felt like my mom swayed our perceptions of my dad long before they got divorced. Um, mostly like just saying like all of the things that he's done wrong and, and, um, like to, to her, which in essence mean that like he was doing it, um, or he was wronging us, his daughters as well. Um, she, I mean, my dad had a drinking problem. He was smoking cigarettes a lot. Um, I think like at, at some point he did have like a drug habit, um, and all too. Um, but like the only way I can describe it is like my dad's side of family are pretty much like all like corrupted hedonists. <laughs> they just indulge, um, and, and, and they come first and, I mean, back in, I don't know, I can't say who they are now, but like back in the day, that's just kind of what it seemed, you know, that like you were there for them to, um, you had to add value to my dad's family. And I mean, even then, like with my mom too, like she, she learned that from them. And for me, I just think that like with divorce, you know, it's, you have to be able to separate the husband aspect and the father aspect um and and for me i and i tell this to my friends too it's like hey like so and so is a shitty boyfriend like i don't recommend anyone like dating this person or whatever you know but he's not evil like he's not a bad person he's just bad in relationships and that was my dad um but it doesn't mean that they're bad people but um and so like you can't you can't use what they've wronged you and and put that on that they're also a bad parent because it they might be a great parent you know and and if you alienate your child and and demonize your ex or whatever you know like you are going to skew your child's perspective of um of their parent that um didn't need to happen or is untrue like I, I grew up, you know, um, I think for the next 10 years, just like thinking that like my dad was the worst human being in the world. And like, it's not, it's not like that at all. Not even to that extent, you know, like there's just a lot of misunderstanding and lack of empathy that goes on. So we, uh, we were talking about the divorce. Everyone, that we had a little bit of a technical glitch, but we're back. We were talking about the divorce. Um, so I guess continue um, about kind of what happened in that little phase. Um, yes. So um, my mom used to like dangle. She, she did this thing where she was like, I don't want any child support from my ex-husband. But then she would dangle us over his head um, to get, like, money or 
um, just to hold power over him. You know, it's like my dad lost my mom. He doesn't want to lose all three of his daughters as well. So, like, she would, you know, um, use, like, visitation rights or even, like, us talking on the phone with him, you know, as as bargaining chips for um, sometimes, like, for money and then other times just to simply be, to be like, I can do this. Like, I can take your kids away from you at any time. You know, it was, like, such a mind fuck and we would all like grow up just thinking that like yeah i mean it's fine that like we treat our dad like shit because like he treated mom like shit and he abandoned us and um and then my stepdad comes into the role and he's very stoic as well very um, uh, emotionally unavailable which my husband now says that like yeah your mom married all of these like um like stoic dudes so that she has enough uh, emotion to uh for the both of them you know and for the entire family um because like if and and I've come to realize too that like a lot of the men in our family if they have like dominant personalities my mom either tries to subdue that or get rid of it it's one of those things it has to be since her divorce with my dad she became like the matriarch like it it was always subtly like a matriarch but she was very like submissive with my dad she she kept her head down because she was in a place where it was out of her element but when she's in her element she's down south now she has her family with her she has you know this um second husband um who's going to dote on her now and and i mean he she she knew how to work the game she she took her trauma she took um everything that happened in her first marriage and um utilized it to her own advantage in her second marriage so a few things happened along the way such as like um hurricane katrina <laughs> so had to go through that we lost everything we had to move um north of where we originally were like about an hour um, made some new friends. I had to make, new, I, which was weird. I made friends for the first time when I moved down south. I was so surprised. They were like, "You're smart and you're kind of pretty and and you're funny." And like they enjoyed who I was, like without like my my mom or sister telling me like sit down and be quiet. Like they just knew from my personality and the way I was at school and stuff. They were just like you're a really cool person. I like you. And I'm just like, oh my God, people like me for being smart. This is great. Like it was such a, a, a stark contrast from um, living up North. It's, um, it's really true. Um, people down there are a lot kinder in that way. Um, and, and they're very easygoing, very uh, heartwarming people. And I made my first friends um there and I I felt like I could like finally be myself but like I was still held on a pretty tight leash by like if my mom wasn't there then my older sister was there to hold the leash um and um so there was only so much that I could act out act out quote unquote but um yeah I mean but my grades still stayed great and um like it turned it started out as like my grades, good grades being like my mom praising me for it. You know, it's like, oh, you did so well. And then it just 
turn into expectations. Um, and it got to the point where, like, my good grades was my default. Like, anything less than that is unacceptable. Um, whereas uh, number one and number three, they had their the bar for them was a lot lower. They and they got lauded. They people, my mom celebrated whenever they had accomplishments, but like I would get these accomplishments as well, and it was just kind of like, mm, good job. Kind <laughs> of, it's, it's so it was so frustrating. I felt so sad because I felt like I was doing something wrong, you know? Um, and I, I graduated top 10 of my class. I got um, so many awards and scholarships and, and um, like I was being recognized like pretty much statewide, you know? And that, I don't know, the look of like, just like, um, it's not disappointment. It's, it's almost um, like, oh, good job, you know, like, it's like a kind of snide, and I felt like that's the reaction I got from my mom, you know, but, like, my younger sister or my older sister would get, like, decent grades or some kind of recognition, and she's just like, oh, you guys did so well, and and I'm just like, still here, <laughs> can I get some of that too, please? <laughs> So at this point of your life, you have now like a group of friends. Yes. Are you able to recognize that what happens in your home versus what happens in someone else's home is different? Because now you actually have a frame of uh, reference to figure out what you're dealing with is not normal. Yeah. And I think that's why my mom hated us hanging out with our friends or doing like too much extracurricular activities um it was always go to school go home and when you're at the house you know like we just played around the house like we were very like sheltered children and I think my mom did that because she she was like if if these girls go out and they see what life is like outside of this they're gonna realize that like this is not the way it should be you know and and I realized that um, unfortunately for my sisters who, you know, they also had their experiences of friends outside of the house, but they were still very tightly tied to my mom. Whereas like for me, I was able to step back and be like, whoa, this is like very different, you know? And I, I had to, I would, I rationalized it at first as like, oh, well, we're Asian and, and my friends are like, you know, white and black and, and everything else. So it was like, I was, maybe it's a cultural difference. And that's why like, there's so much more like uh chill, whereas my family's more uptight. So like, I mean, for a very long time, I just thought it was like a cultural thing. Not that like, it's like a, a toxic thing in the family itself, you know? Well, I'm sure for a lot of people out there, they've gone throughout their lives thinking it's a cult, like the way I grew up is a cultural difference. That's what you're yeah. always told. It's a cultural difference. Yeah. And then eventually you might figure out because there's no frame of reference of other people that are in the same culture as well. That right. No, this is not a culture thing. I'm told it's a culture thing, but it's really toxic behavior. Yeah. And, with you, and with your mom here, we, I'm going to bring up the word control. Mm -hmm. And your mom spent a lot of her life 
trying to get away from control and then doesn't have the uh, vision or the internal awareness that she's repeating the same mm-hmm. things that were done to her, which has to be yeah. frustrating. Are you able at that age to actually say like out loud or inside your head, like, Hey, like you did that and you were, you know, you were explaining this to us in this way and now you're doing it to us. Did you see a hypocrisy of what was going on? I, I saw it when I was around 18. Um, and that was like my first crack in the relationship with my mom as well, um, where she had this no dating rule. Uh, it was like, you're not allowed to date till you graduate high school. And it was three months before my high school graduation. And I, uh, met this boy that I thought was cute and sweet. Um, biggest douche canoe ever. BT doves did not last. Uh, but. I challenged the no dating rule and I was like, mom, I would like to date this guy. And she said, it's three months from graduation. Like you're not allowed to date. I'm like, well, why not? What were the stipulations of why we're not allowed to date? And if, if she just said, because I I said so, that'd be one thing. But she rationalized it by saying, you girls made a promise to me that if I stayed with your dad, you wouldn't date until you graduated high school. And so I said, now at the time, one, making a a verbal contract with a minor for something like that is like totally unethical, probably illegal. But um, the other thing was that, like, I told my mom, I was like, well, you and dad divorced for six years at this point. Doesn't that mean that that verbal contract is no longer like valid? You know, I was just like, well, you're not with dad anymore. So why can't I date? And she got, she got really upset because I think that was the first time one of us ever like uh, challenged her logic or challenged her, her authority in any way. And she got like super pissed at me. And I've, I've never like seen my mom like angry at me for a thing before. And I was just like, mom, do you want me to date this boy? before I go off to college where you can like teach me the right ways and, and what I need to be prepared for? Or do you want me to not date until I graduate high school, go off to college, um, fuck around and then come home three months later, pregnant with an STD. Like, like you can decide if you want to educate me or if you want me to just go into the wild and figure it out. So the re- the rebel in you came to light here. The, yes. the, the person that you really are yeah, came to light here. And how does your mom respond to that? Because this is someone they've never seen before, the real you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think she always hinted, like she always saw it, um, that I was different from my sisters. Um, and she knew that whatever control she had over my sisters, it was going to be harder to do with me. Um, I could see the anger at first and then I could see now that like she was afraid of losing that control over me and that this was like the first moment where my mom had to be like, I need to control her or I need to get her out. 
Um, so she allowed me to date this boy anyway. Um, and I dated him for six months, you know, through high school graduation and then into my first semester of college when I broke it off with him. <laughs> he calls my mom crying <laughs> that I broke up with him. So my mom calls me yelling. And like, this is my first semester of college. I had just turned 19, that my birthday has just passed. And it was my first time long term away from home, um, from having nothing but my family to like now not having them or a boyfriend or anything. And my, my mom was like, I let you date this boy and you break up with him only after six months. And I got really upset because then again, my logic clicked in and I was just like, uh, mom, how long would have I had to date this guy before it was okay that I broke up with him? And she got so pissed at me and she said, oh, so you think you're so responsible now? And I said, no, mom, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not responsible. I don't have a job. I don't know how to like handle my money. I just started college, you know? I said, I'm not a responsible person, but I should have autonomy over who I choose to be in a relationship with. And she didn't like that. She didn't like that I had that logic. And she got pissed off and said, well, if you think you're so responsible now, don't bother calling home. Don't come home. We don't want you here. And then she hung up. And that was the first time that I got disowned in my life under all the other circumstances, you know, I had just like broken up with my first boyfriend and, and I lost, you know, that and then uh, indirectly my family as well. And, and now I was like, I am really alone. And I was terrified. So you're sitting there and you're terrified. Where do you go? Who do you call? Like, what do you latch on to, to find your footing here? And what in your mind, like, obviously your mind can take you to some strange places when you're in these moments. What were you thinking at that point your life was going to turn out like, if that makes sense? I, I'm, I've always been a get shit done kind of girl. Uh, and for me, that's kind of been my entire life. I, it's like, oh, you don't have a family anymore. Well, you need to learn how to open a bank account, um, get your own um, P.O. box or whatever. And you need to know how to, like, figure out your finances, see if you can get a job. Like, I had to figure out all of those logistics very quickly, um, even though, like, I've had no experience in any of that before. And, and for me, it's just like, I'm just not the person to lay down and die. I'm not the type of person who... Um, just curls up and hopes that it gets better in the morning. No, I'm like, I need to do this or I will die. And I refuse to die. Um, I've, I'm stubbornly the type of person who refuses to die in many occasions. Um, but uh, with this as well, it was just like, I don't have my mom, but I have me. And that's what matters right now. Um, and, and like, if I can't depend on myself, what am I going to do? So I had to like just get my shit together and and do that. And then, of course, like I had to learn how to make friends outside of like, you know, my family circle. 
um, a lot of high school friends don't go to the same colleges that you do either. So like, you know, we all got separated in that way as well. And life goes on. But like, for me, I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to have my family back, but I need to make sure that I make it out of this alive. And so I just got my shit together and, and just did the best I could. I think what is interesting, or maybe I'm wrong, is that you stayed on your side as far as a boundary went. You didn't try and go to get uh, into the good graces. You had a, a real stiff boundary right here where you're like, I'm going to go concentrate on me and I'm not going to try and concentrate on whatever is going on in that household with my sisters, with my step siblings, which we really haven't yeah. touched on. Oh, yeah, yeah. With anybody at all. I'm concentrating on me and my future. Right. And I think that's really interesting because a lot of people who are looking for the approval of their parents, a big tough thing would be to say to themselves, I'm putting a line in the stand right here. Right. I'm not jumping back over that line. Mm. And you didn't want anything to do with that. You're waiting for, I guess, if anything, and we'll find out more, them maybe to come back to you or yeah. that door to be opened. And you weren't, you you got good boundaries at this point. Yeah. 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 Just gets more solid from there. But, um, so uh, one thing that we didn't mention with that, which I just mentioned, which was mm -hmm. other siblings that haven't been mentioned before. Was that really confusing? So explain one specific, uh, sibling that eventually did enter your family, how that all happened because they become a player in this story. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so my cousin, actually, on my mom's side, um, my mom adopted him um, after Hurricane Katrina because um, his parents couldn't really or didn't really want to take care of him. I don't know. Like, I think, like, because they, they my, my cousin's mom was a teen mom. They were teenagers when they had him. So um, I think, like, they really just wanted to um, offload that responsibility and live their lives. And my mom just decided to take guardianship. Um, so he's, like, legally my adopted brother now, which is awesome. And he's been in our family ever since. He's he's about the same age as number three. Um, they're, I think they're both, like, 25-ish now. But, yeah. Um, and then my half-siblings... Uh, four and five are from my stepdad. Um, sorry, five and six. Five is my half sister. Six is my half brother. And um, there's it right now. I think the age range. My youngest sibling is like thirteen or fourteen, and my oldest sister is like thirty-two ish. Um, and so like, there's like a major age gap with like all of us. And, um, unfortunately when I left for college at 19, uh, five and six were very young. They were like three and four years old. So they pretty much grew up without me. 
Um, number three was three and four were um, in high school, I think, at the time, but they were still very impressionable. Um, so my mom and um, my older sister's influence, you know, definitely like change their perspective of me to some extent. How does it feel to be universally disliked by the family? It doesn't feel real. Uh, <laughs> it it feels like I've done something wrong. Um, and all I was trying to do was be myself and and take responsibility for my own actions and be independent. And for them, it's such a beehive mentality, you know, where it's like it's us against the world. And, and if you're not with us, then you're with all the other evil people. And for them, they they realize that they can't control me. Um, especially now that like I'm off in college and I've, you know, made these decisions for myself, you know, they they can't control me. So they need to change the narrative um, or else they're going to lose um, control of everybody else in their family. And this is why families are on the cult spectrum. They are. It is such a cult. It's so bad. I just. It's the the amount of deprogramming that would take um, to clean everybody in the family. Like, it would just be too exhausting. That could be someone's entire career. Um, but it, it's the fact that I was able to realize that so early on in my life and was able to pull away from it. It, it got to a point, and now more especially, my peace of mind was more important than my need for my family. Um, and, and that became more and more true um, the older I got. Um, and, like, my mom did take me back uh, for a while, but, like, it, it was with uh, conditions, you know? And, and at that point, after the first disownment, she and my older sister tend to triangulate me a lot where, you know, when I did the few times that I did come home to visit or, or we were on the phone or whatever with each other, um, anything that they don't like that I did, they both like went against me um, at the same time. And because, you know, I'm there by myself, I'm already in a household that like doesn't really give a shit about me. I was very vulnerable to those attacks, you know, um, and, and I don't know, like it felt so helpless because they make me feel so shitty for just like trying to figure out who I am trying to do this and, and whatever. And it just, it just wasn't something that I, I was aware that was bad for me. Cause for me, I was like, Oh, I'm the bad thing. I'm doing all the things that I want to do, but at the cost of like really upsetting my family and disappointing my family. And so like, I mean, I was still doing what I wanted to do, but it, it came with so much guilt, um, which had no foundation at all. Like they made me feel guilty for making friends and dating and, and just like being a teenager. And then eventually 
your mom wants to control who you marry. Yes, absolutely she did. <laughs> so I was 19, maybe had just turned 20 at the time, um, but I was so desperate to get back in my mom's good graces. Like I was still like trying to hold strong and be, be my own person, but uh, extend my love to her in any way that I could. And she came to me with this proposition to marry her nephew in Vietnam to bring him to America. My cousin, my first cousin, actually, um, she said that she loved him and she wanted him to have a better life in America. So um, number one actually volunteered um, to marry him um, because she has this high um, ideal of, of honor and loyalty to the family. And she was like, I can bear this weight if it means that, like, you know, it's I'm seen as, like, a strong person, someone who's, like, really caring and, and would sacrifice her own, like, marital status for, you know, a family member or whatever. Uh, but she didn't have a job. <laughs> and apparently you need some kind of an income to uh, be able to sponsor a spouse from out of the country. I mean, I worked in retail, which, like, doesn't pay much for one person, but my mom said that she was going to, like, fund the rest of the marriage um, to to get him over here. All I had to do was sign my name. So with things like adopting your cousin and, mm-hmm. you know, taking in a different cousin to get him married off to you as a way to get them over here. Is your mom's, I I guess, psyche here looking for approval from the rest of the family as of like, what a good person I am. Look what I'm doing for the family. Kind of like she's still part of this hive mentality. She uh, is has her own hive connected to this hive where she's the the queen bee of that hive. But in reality, maybe one day she's working her way through to get the other queen or whoever that is, the approval that she desperately wants or needs. Right. And yeah. then maybe one day can take over the whole entire hive. I, it's so, it's so bizarre because like, it just feels like, their kindness comes with a motive. Like they don't do kind things for for goodness sake. They do it because of how people will view them, how people will um, like see them. And and th- she loves the admiration. She loves um, the sympathy. You know. And and I mean, it's it's addicting. You know that kind of like um, affirmation. Um, validation from people i don't like it's it's so bad only to me because i feel like she purposely takes in broken people to try and it's very culty very culty guys broken people are very vulnerable to um this type of mentality where it's like hey let me help you and in return you know um, we are like your God, like we, we are your saviors um, and, and we could do no wrong. So anyone who wrongs us, you need to hate them too, like kind of thing. Like she, she, that's how she builds her, her little army 
of people and and like it's it's so weird like the fact that they do these good things only so that they can brag about or not even brag but like showcase it you know it's just like oh well if i do this kind thing this is how it'll look to me or on uh um about me you know and and for me it makes me question the good things that i do for other people as well because i worry you know with that imposter syndrome that like am i doing good things for people just like my mom and sister are because they want that recognition they want that sympathy and for me it's very different i'm just like no like i just i want one less person to feel lonely i want one less person to feel helpless and all that stuff and for me if i can make a person's day or life better um that's all the incentive that i need you know and and i i question that all the time because of my mom and sister and here you are being given the opportunity to change your cousin's life in vietnam so how do you deal with that when you're given the arranged marriage proposal i took it so fast because i was like this is what's gonna get my mom to love me again <laughs> um 19 year old minds guys we do reckless shit um but i agreed to it very quickly and we went through the whole um the whole process pretty pretty close to the whole process you know we had to go huh I had to go back to Vietnam, which now I'm really hating going to Vietnam because both times were not for me. I had to go back there. We had to like take pictures with my cousin in like, you know, just lovey-dovey positions. And we had to do the paperwork and just basically make it look like it's a legit relationship. Um, and, and that we were really wanting to go forward with it. Um, and that was when my first signs of severe anxiety and depression really hit um i think i've always like had like hints of it as a kid um the anxiety for sure but um it really hit hard when i was in that um engagement process because like i felt like what i was doing felt wrong and that it didn't feel like i was gaining anything out of it except for my mom's approval and it still felt like it wasn't enough and and I didn't I couldn't tell anyone in my side of the family because I was because who would who would empathize with me who would understand that you know um I I would often be called selfish um if I did things for me and I was like this is the first like selfless thing I think that I've done for them and and like if I just stick this out, then my mom, my mom would love me again. Like she loves my siblings, and I don't want to say that like she she never loved me the way she loved them. But at that point, I don't think she could have loved me at, as much as she loved my siblings. And to this day, that still holds true. And I I still cry about that shit, <laughs> especially during holidays. I'm just like, why isn't my mom? 
mom loved me like she loved my siblings but um it's it's something that I have to like um deal with internally all the time and it it sucked I was crying I think I cut myself once and then realized I I hated the feeling so I didn't do it again (laughs) so um I I I don't encourage it for anybody but uh especially for me I I was like oh I don't like this pain so I chose not to do it again um so um all of my my pain happened internally it didn't I never projected it onto my body or anybody else um, in that way. But it, yeah, dude, this, this arranged marriage, like, fucked me up um, so much. And I did, I was still dating people and I had to, like, hide my relationship with these guys so that it, I couldn't publicize my relationship with, like, my actual boyfriends. Because, like, if, you know, people in social media saw that, then they'll be like, oh, well, then your arranged marriage is a sham, you know? Um, and so I had to keep all of my relationships in secret. And my mom actually randomly called off the wedding one day um, because my my cousin was posting pictures of him and his girlfriend on social media. <laughs> And so, like, she she got super upset with him. She was like, I'm doing all of this to bring you to America, and you're just, like, publicizing your relationship with, like, your actual girlfriend and all that stuff. And so she got pissed at him, and she called it off. And at this time, I had started dating my husband. And, um, again, I had to keep it a secret. But my mom called it off, and I was, like, asking for her blessing to publicize my relationship with my husband. And... She gave me the blessing. She was like, yeah, fine, whatever, just do that. So, like, I felt like without my, like, without having to do anything, I was free from that burden, you know, and it felt so good. Did she do that out of spite to your cousin? Who? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) She's like, I I tried to help you. I'm not doing this to help my daughter here i just want to spite you so you know that this whole entire thing we were doing is over yep yep and months later she she calls me and said she went back to vietnam by herself she reconciled with my cousin and i was just like congratulations that's awesome and then she drops the bomb of i need you to do this arranged marriage again bruh (laughs) my heart into my gut i i felt like my whole world was like spiraling again because i was immediately brought back to all of those triggers of of like i have to go through that psychological torture of like um of am i doing the right thing or am i just like doing the thing for a love that i'm never going to achieve like there was just so many things going on in my head and i i didn't i froze for like the first time in my life I was shattered and I made the decision for the second time in my life to say no um and I at first I was like can I think about this or whatever and then um I went to work that night I was working as um, a server at a restaurant it was super busy and she calls me in the middle of my shift and she's like can you do this for me like please do this for me and like in 
in Asian culture, when someone who's older than you is telling you that they're on their knees and they're begging you or whatever, it's a big sign of disrespect because like older people should not have to lower themselves to a younger person, you know? And so my mom used that and she said, Henrietta, please do this for me. I love my nephew. I want him to have a better life. Don't you love him too? If you love me, you would do this. And, and she said, I'm on my knees. I'm begging you. And I just, I was crying because all I wanted to do was yell at her. Like, you don't understand how much this hurt me, you know, but I couldn't. And all I could choke up was, I'm sorry, mom, I can't. And just over and over, that was all I could say. And like, after like a few of those, she realized that like, she's not going to get through to me. So she just like hung up on me and then disowned me for the second time. And like, (laughs) and like, honestly, dude, show me the meaning of being lonely. Cause that was, (laughs) that was that moment. I was crying my eyes out in this restaurant. I had uh, once again, lost my entire family over something so dumb. And I had to like wipe the tears away, go back on the floor and get shit done. Like, people still had to get served, you know? And, and for me, I, I was broken again. Like I lost my mom again, but at least this time I have my husband with me. Um, who like, you know, he, he was, he was what saved me, honestly, you know, um, throughout all of this. So now you're with your husband and, what is he saying to you about this situation? And he's obviously learning all about your life. How does he come into play and reinforcing you as a person? And then also at the same time, how do you not, uh, how do you keep good boundaries uh, with him during this process and not putting your worth in all of what you want from your mom and everything into him. That's hard. And that's still a lesson I've had to learn 10 years uh, in the future. Like, like that took 10 years for me to fully realize that. But um, my husband, he just, when he walks into a room, he brings this like aura of Zen into the room and everyone just like kind of immediately like calm. So I'm very hyperactive. I'm very high energy. I'm, um, I got to go, go, go. And he is just like very chill, very laid back. And he was able to calm me down, help me process the pain and rationalize why my family is doing what they're doing. Like he gave me so much clarity about, just how fucked up the situation is. He was like, you realize your family's toxic, right? Um, and and he was like, your mom shouldn't. And I didn't, I was just like, my husband's biased because, you know, he's with me or whatever. But like, that's not the case at all. Like, apparently, like, he, he was very honest about it. He was like, that's not healthy for you. Like, he was like, you're doing so much to get their approval and you know you're not going to get it. So why do you continue to put yourself through that pain you know and he he mellowed me out a lot he helped me with my anger issues he helped me um better process um 
you know, the dynamic between me and my mom and my siblings even, you know. And um, I was able to really step back and not <laughs> not see my family as, like, all good, all bad. I'm just, like, they're just very, like, broken people. And they're just doing the best that they can to um, survive, you know. And, and this is what worked so far for them. And this is what they're going to continue to do. And I just refuse to be a part of that. So... You're now in this situation where your boyfriend or your husband now is involved in your life and you have to go mm-hmm. no contact. So what was the, what were the steps of going no contact or the gradual no contact? Yeah, so it was very, it was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be only because they had had gray rocked me for so long they gray rocked me you know like i i would try to reach out i would try to like you know try to bond with my siblings but they've already solidified this mindset that i'm a bad person and that like spending time with me isn't worth it so um they've kind of just seen me as like a distant relative or a guest who come to the house so i it was very that was already in the works, so that was gradual. My older sister and I, I cut her off, and it ended in quite the argument. Um, and I was just like, don't. I, she, she, she does this thing where she'll do the nice thing for me and say, we do this because we're siblings. Like, you don't owe me anything. You know, like, this is just what we do. And then, like, the next time we get upset with each other, any time after that we get upset with each other, she'll bring it up. Well, I did this for you and I did that for you. I was there for you when you and your boyfriend got into an argument. I gave you money when you were um, this and that or whatever. And at some point I was just like, I can't do this with you anymore. I was just like, you're toxic and I don't need this in my life. And it's like, you're my sister, but I don't have to treat you the way that all the other siblings treat you. Um, because I'm not being respected at all. And so I was like, I'm going to pay you back all the money that I owe you. Don't call me. Don't come to my workplace. Don't follow me to my apartment. I, I, and I was serious. I was just like, I will call the cops on you if you, like, overstep that boundary. And she immediately, when I blocked her, she immediately called number four, the adopted brother, because the catalyst of that argument revolved around him and she called him and said before Henrietta calls you this is what's uh this is what happened she blew it out of proportion and like she spun her her narrative and I didn't even think to call number four because I was just like that's an argument between me and number one like four is not involved so four calls me and he was just like hey is this true or whatever And I was like, why don't you come over to my apartment one day and I will read verbatim the chat message that I had with number one. And when I think like a few days after that, you know, he came over and I read the text messages verbatim that revolved him and all that stuff. And he said, that's not at all what number one said. (laughs) I was like, I'm not telling you to make up your mind. I'm telling you this is what was said. You can make up your own mind. You know, like it's and and that's kind of how it's always been. They'll spin 
and they'll make sure that their narrative is um is set in stone before I get a word in so that people already have an idea of what the story is you know um so there's no no room for me to defend myself because no one like no one even cares at that point she's just trying to get like sympathy or us on her side and I told my 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 brother I was just like yo like these are the messages you can decide for yourself like what you feel about the situation you know and that was like one of the reasons why like four and I get along so well is because like I don't bullshit him the way that my family does you know and I was very real um with our dynamic I was like I'm your older sister but you are an adult now. I will allow you to have, you know, your freedom as an adult. If you need me, I'm here. But like, but for me, I'm just like, I had to learn how to be an adult by myself. I don't want to coddle you um, throughout your entire life, like everybody else in the family has. So get on your own two feet, do your own shit. I am here if you need me to catch you. Has that been healing for you? That relationship? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, he's the only member in my family, like, in my immediate family who I still talk to, um, and, um, it, it just felt so good to have at least one person on my side. He was still, like, he still talks to my family and all that, like, he's, he's in their circle, but, um, because he kind of sort of followed in my footsteps, he was able to step away from that and see that see the dynamic between everyone and see how toxic it is and how little control we have you know um but he's just like they're my peeps y'all took me in when my family my own parents wouldn't like so he's like devoted to them you know and he he loves the younger siblings for sure and he's very aware of like the toxicity with my mom and my older sister but um he learns to let that ride and for me i learned to remove myself from it but he knows always that you're the one that got out and that if he ever needs that last step of getting out that you are that you are this uh refuge at least for an ear which must be nice because after everything that's happened with your mom with your older sister just the whole entire family as a whole to at least know and it's and it's not everyone can deal with this the way you are in the sense of, you know, a lot of people are just don't speak to any member of their family anymore. And it becomes a big thing, but it really must be nice to know that like you can be there for this specific family member when they, they Mm -hmm. need you. And that there Mm -hmm. is that little still bit of a connection that might give Mm -hmm. you like a warmth that you need. So I'm happy that you have that. Yeah. And, um, with my other siblings, you know, like we, I, I cut off contact with my mom, uh, August of 2020. So like in the midst of the beginning of the pandemic, yeah, for the last like year and a half, August will be two years now. Um, I haven't talked to my mom. And because of that, unfortunately, I had to go no contact with the rest of my mom's side of the family too, because everything I said to them went back to my mom and older sister. And it was used as ammo for them to like gossip about me. And I was like, I can't, I can't, um, try to spend quality time with you only for you to weaponize that as gossip and and i i had to step away from that too and i was just like i need to learn 
how to be at peace on my own without any anybody's help, you know. Um, and I, I mean, thank God I had my husband, um, who he just keeps me grounded, you know. Like he's, he's like a real life guru. Like <laughs> he's he's so he's so grounded in that way, and he helped me like get so far. Um, and so transitioning out of that family was a lot healthier and a lot um, better for me in the long run. So if you had any words of wisdom for others uh, that are in these family relationships and relationships as a whole, what uh, words of wisdom or advice do you have for them? Even if you feel like you have lost everything and everyone, you still have you. And I feel like a lot of people forget that. Um, you don't need, I'm not saying you don't need to depend on people, but there is not a life-threatening necessity to stay with people who hurt you. There's no need to get closure from people like that either. I feel like people want to reconcile and, and want to have that closure. And you don't need that. Why do you need someone who hurt you to tell you that they hurt you and that they're sorry? Like, I mean, one, are they even really sorry? And two, do you need that from them? Like, you were, you, you've done fine healing yourself. You've, you are capable. You are able to do everything that they say you can't do. That doesn't make you selfish, you know, it, it makes you resilient to be able to shatter that perspective that they are your end-all be-all, they are your only lifeline, they are not. You are your lifeline. You have that choice. And you can't, don't give up on yourself because of it, you know? And, and I tell people, it was like in, lo in love and death, Expect nothing, hope for more. And that goes with, like, your relationships with these abusers or, or anybody in your life. And, and, like, in death, it's, you don't know what happens after death. We have an idea. We have hopes and all that stuff. But you know you have this life. You are living it right now. You are alive right now. Do what you can with this life and, and do something for yourself. If you crap out at, at, at 80 and you don't know what the afterlife is or reincarnation is, do you want to live your whole life knowing that you were trying to please people who were never going to approve of you, who were never going to love you or accept you, you know? And, and for me, I just, I couldn't do that to myself anymore. I had to walk away and I was like they might see it as selfish but I'm doing I am living my life for me and I hadn't done that in so long like especially at the beginning of my life you know and yeah that's kind of what I have to say with that <laughs> well Henrietta I want to thank you for being our guest today and sharing your story sharing you know your pain all of, you had a lot of learning lessons in there, so I really want to thank you. And so, but before we end off, I'm going to share a 
Backstreet Boys factoid with you. Are you really? Oh, this is great. I'm ready. I'm ready. It's my own factoid. And it's something a lot of people don't really know. But in 1996, I lived Mm -hmm. in Montreal. And I don't know if you know this, but the Backstreet Boys fandom pretty much began in Montreal or in Quebec, uh, Canada. I think that's where, like, they grew out from, like, their first stronghold of, like, fans kind of came from there. I was one day walking down uh, the street, St. Catherine Street, in front of, uh, I was going past HMV, which is uh, a music store, or was a music store at the Mm -hmm. time. And it was crazy. It was mobbed. And there was just (laughs) girls everywhere everywhere they just surrounded this place and i mm-hmm. remember asking someone i'm like who is who's here i was 20 years old i'm like who's here right. They're like the backstreet boys and i was like i don't know who that is but i guess who was in charge i think like maybe a month later the rest of the world began to know who they were yeah but i think the marketing strategy or whatever like for bands like this they start off in like one little pocket and, like, they grow their fandom from there. So, like, they know they have this stronghold to always go back to. And then they right. grow from there. And yeah. it was, for some reason, it was in Quebec. Um, or at least I think it was because of what was going But I really do think that's what kind of happened. That's where they started their, like, um, yeah. the, the groundswell of what yeah, was going yeah, on for awesome. them. That's so, a great fact. So if there was a, um, a song that you want to sing us out with, go for it. Absolutely not. I will not humiliate myself. <laughs> I'm like, good try, though. It's I been try. two hours, and um, you, you tried. You really did. <laughs> well, Henrietta, once again, I really want to thank you for being here. You were able to just um, touch a lot of people today in sharing your story, and you're going to help a lot of people. So big thank you for me and everyone out there. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope my story can help even one person. Um, and and I, I, I'm rooting for all of y'all, really. Like, it's it feels like it's so scary and so lonely. But, I mean, y'all are tough cookies. You've gotten this far, you know. Don't doubt yourself. Don't allow people to um, put doubt in you and make you feel worthless because you know you're not at your core you are not a worthless being so don't treat yourself like that well thank you for those words and if you want to be a guest like Henrietta was today, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There's all the instructions there. Please read the instructions and send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or just submit it through our Guest Form page. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have our very own safe social network. So at the top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that, it takes you to our support group page. There we have our very own uh, uh, forum boards. I, I could 
took me a while to spit that out. Our forum boards are there for you to ask questions, get support there. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have ad-free episodes as well. And if you just want to support our show, just join our support group because it helps us out a lot. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. And domesticshelters.org has articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through. Uh, They have local resources like shelters. They can connect you with them. And it's just a a great uh, organization, a great place. It's a free resource. You can access everything at domesticshelters.org. So uh, once again, a big thank you for everyone, to everyone for listening and uh, to Henrietta and from myself and Henrietta, we hope you have a good night.